Reading this morning from Revelation chapter 4. After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like emerald and circled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and pearls of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man, and the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings as was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creature give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. This is the word of the Lord. Every week, early in the week, I start looking at a passage of Scripture that I want to do my best to explicate on Sunday morning for all of you. And I have to admit Like many of you, I'll look at a passage of Scripture, and I'll say to myself, what's the main point? There's so many things going on here, so many directions you could take. What's the main idea? That's part of trying to hone a sermon. But I have to tell you, this week was simple. There's only one main idea here. It's encapsulated with one word, worship. That's what this whole passage, chapter 4 and chapter 5, are all about. At the center of this passage is the throne. And in the throne, or on the throne, there's a person who we take to be God for good reason. But we really don't see an image of God like a human image. What the revelation of John describes is some amazing symbols in this vision. What do all the symbols mean? For instance, surrounding the throne, there are 24 elders What must those 24 elders represent? Quite traditionally, those 24 elders have said to be the 12 tribes of Israel represented and the 12 apostles 
that followed Jesus. Symbolic, it seems, of Jews and Gentiles united under the canopy of God's grace. That in the person of Jesus Christ, the Messiah of God is for the whole world. Not just the Jewish nation, but Gentiles as well. That's an interesting image in itself. But there's other images, as you know, in this passage. One of the images is of four beasts. We're not told really everything about the beasts, except we're told some important things that, again, are images. What we know about these beasts in general from the animal world is this. The lion is undisputably the king of the beasts. Well, we know of the ox is that the ox is indisputably the largest and most powerful animal among the domestic beasts. Well, we know of the eagle is that the eagle is the strongest, the fastest, and the highest flight of any of the birds. And what we know of the human, we know from Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, that of all creatures on God's earth, God created human beings in his own image to reflect the image of God to others. So the wisest of all the creatures. But there are other analogies that could be made and have been made for hundreds of years concerning these four creatures. Some people think that those four creatures actually symbolize the Gospels in a creative way. Augustine seems to have had the dominant interpretation for many years. And Augustine's interpretation is that Matthew was symbolized by the lion. Because Matthew does the best job or emphasizes the most the kingship of Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Augustine also said that Mark represents the human side of Jesus better than any other. So the beast with the human face is represented in Mark. He goes on to say that Luke is best symbolized by the ox. Why? Because he said in Luke's gospel, you see the sacrificial system that Jesus has come to fulfill, more than you do in the other gospels. And then he says, John, that is symbolized in the eagle. Because John's gospel is, well, more lofty theologically than any of the others. It stands above them all like a swift, strong, soaring eagle. It shows you the entire landscape. Think of John's gospel for a minute. It's the one that begins before Christ became a human being. John's gospel is the one that says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In other words, the pre-incarnate Christ. That's John's gospel. So perhaps there's good reason to see the Gospels in these four beasts. But there's also something else going on in this image, actually many things which we can't 
unpack all of them, but many things. And one of the things going on in this image is at the center of the throne, there is a being who is likened to Jasper and Carnelian. Very precious, very expensive stones. Those precious, expensive stones were known to be characteristic for this. All the light around them was captured by them in a kaleidoscope kind of way. So you looked at those stones and you saw every color that was represented in the universe around them. Everything that was beautiful was concentrated in the stone and reflected by the stone. Symbolically, it seems that the one at the center of the throne, when that one is worshipped, creation comes alive. Everything that creation was meant to be at its highest order takes on the grandest hue because all the creatures and the humans and the 24 elders and all the heavenly beings are worshiping the one who's at the center of the throne. Fascinating picture. What's the point of the picture? The point of the picture is to remind a group of first century Christians that in spite of their circumstances, in spite of what it seems, that powerful men and powerful nations are in charge of the daily affairs of all humanity, in spite of that, the one at the center of the throne is in charge of history, humanity, and is giving us a narrative. A narrative of how it unfolds. But before we say something about the narrative, which comes along the way in the book of Revelation, we have to remind ourselves of this story, and the story is this. There were seven scrolls. And John was getting this revelation at the center of the throne, but the scrolls weren't open. The revelation had not been unsealed. And John looked and he said, who's worthy? Who's worthy to open those scrolls? And everywhere he looked, there was no one worthy. Until all of a sudden, as if out of nowhere, a lamb appears. This lamb was scarred. Think of the lamb dripping with blood after a slaughter. That lamb appears. But that lamb is not just a slaughtered lamb. That lamb has seven horns and seven eyes. That lamb is, as we know, the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And John said, there was one person who was worthy to open the scroll, to reveal the future of humanity and what God was up to, and it was the lamb. And the lamb opened the scroll because that lamb is, is the one that was slain before the foundation of the earth and received power and glory and wisdom and strength and honor and praise. The revelation says to the people, here's how the future unfolds. 
It might look like history is out of your control, but history is under the control of the one at the center of the throne. You know, in order to understand this revelation, you have to understand it by faith. You, you can't on any given day look around yourself and see it clearly. That's because there's a narrative. There's a narrative that is invisible to our natural eye. It's a spiritual reality, a story of what is taking place. When you and I walk through this world, we're experiencing only images of reality. We're experiencing only shadows of the full reality. And in order to see the full reality that John sees, we have to walk by faith. You know how we walk by faith? Well, you might say, that's another sermon. You're right. But on this occasion, the way we walk by faith, according to John, is we enter worship. That's where, in worship, another narrative appears. It's in worship that that invisible story becomes our reality. We see things we never saw before in worship. I... Um, always enjoy the holidays for a variety of reasons, but as most of you, I enjoy the holidays because for the most part, I get to see family. Uh, my kids usually come back, and we have fun together, but one of the things we consistently do every holiday is uh, we pull out a great, big, elaborate, difficult puzzle. We put it on the table. And no matter what's going on, somebody will just break away and work on the puzzle. And then another person will join them. And sometimes around the table, everybody's there trying to put the puzzle together. And the puzzle is, is tough. It's not a simple puzzle. But you know what we all do to begin with? We get all the flat pieces and we square out the frame. Worship is a framework of reality. And once we square out the frame, we start looking for all the pieces and how they fit together. Sometimes it's maddening. Sometimes you think the guy who cut this thing left pieces out. And almost every time you're wrong because eventually the pieces come together. After laborious, intensive work, they come together, and somewhere along the way, it happens every time. Somebody will shout, I found it! You found what? Well, I found that piece that puts a lot of other pieces together. And routinely, that person will say, how could we have missed it? It was there all along. That's worship, my friends. In worship, this framework... In worship, the pieces of life start to fit together. The reality of the spiritual world makes sense 
Sometimes it dissipates quickly when we leave worship, but at least for a few moments we understand. We realize what is the real world. So worship, it frames our lives and brings the pieces together. Worship does something else, though. Worship calls us to a commitment. It basically says, if you believe this, if you praise my name, if you actually believe what you say you believe in word and in song, then live it out. Live in such a way that you believe that I'm on the throne. Live in such a way that you believe I will supply all your needs according to my riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Live in such a way like the lilies of the field who care not about one day or another because they know their heavenly Father is going to care for them. Live in that way. Live with eternity's values in view. It lifts us above our circumstances and challenges us to live according to our faith. And it challenges us to take our circumstances and live out our faith. That's why worship created so many beautiful hymns. Hymns like this one that you know so well. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. Take my moments and my days. Let them flow in ceaseless praise. Every moment of every day. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. Take my voice and let it sing always only for my king. Take my lips and let them be filled with messages from thee. Take my silver and my gold. Take my stuff, the stuff I would hang on to. Not a single thing, not a mite, says the songwriter, would I withhold. But he doesn't end there. He says, take my intellect and use every power as thou shalt choose. Take my will and make it thine. It shall be no longer mine. Take my heart. It is thine own. Think about this passage. It shall be thy royal throne. Worship calls us to commitment. It calls us to relinquish everything at the foot of our master who redeemed us and to use everything for his glory and to walk with him steadfastly and courageously through all the issues that we encounter in a regular day. My conclusion is to remind you of something. It's to remind you that you must embrace an eternal narrative. Not a circumstantial narrative. Not a narrative written some book. 
but an eternal divine narrative, which is described in the book of Revelation. And in order to do that, you have to make a commitment to an invisible God. You have to believe that history is in God's hand. And you have to have the strength of patience to continue to believe it and to continue to walk by faith. You you have no idea what a delight it is to see all your faces in worship. I live for this. It's the highlight of my week. Not because that's what I do, but it's the highlight of my week because that's where it's at. Right here in worship. That's what's real. So I want to address you, but I I especially want to address those who are watching. I understand something. I understand that we're in difficult times. I look at this crowd and it's wonderful. But of course the church is not full. And I know many of you are out there watching. And what I want to encourage and challenge you with is this. When all this chaos is over, when the dust settles, please don't think you're okay. Please do not neglect the community of faith. Please return to worship. You cannot, my friends, have this vision of worship. You cannot hold on to a robust faith unless you're in the community of believers. It will disappear like a vapor. And the circumstances of life will eclipse the eternal reality of the narrative that God is writing. So be in worship. Don't neglect it. Unlike anywhere else, God's word comes alive here. Here it is in a nutshell. I actually want to read my words, which I rarely do. It is in the middle of worship that I realize that trials have a purpose, that history is not random, that life is not meaningless, that death is not final, and that God is going to restore everything that he created and pronounce it again, good. When I realize those things, I'm at the heart of worship. I'm at the feet of Jesus. And all is well with my soul and with God's world. Let's pray. Lord, you have been so gracious uh, to us to give us the revelation of your word. 
in this book that we call the Revelation, you roll back the curtain a little bit and remind us that you're in control and that all things are going to work out according to your purposes. When we look behind the curtain, we're reminded of the saints who believed that and saw it. We're reminded of Joseph who looked at his life after he was sold into slavery and spoke to his brothers the words, ah, yes, you must have meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. Lord, give us divine insight into the narrative that you're writing and the future that is to come. Because we know in the middle of that narrative, we find peace. And we know, Lord, that we find that negative, that narrative, most especially in the act of worship. So, Lord, may the words of our mouth, the meditations of our heart, be acceptable in your sight. O oh, Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen.